Beloved in Christ our Lord, growing up I would often pass by a public school building with this beautiful mural painted on the outside wall. Covering an entire outside wall of the school was this beautiful painting of a tree. And under it, there were children that were reading and writing. The caption above it reads, Give your children just two things. One is roots, the other wings. It got me to thinking, this catchy saying, written initially for teachers and children, give your children two things, one is roots, the other wings, it's also true for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The original meaning of this saying is that education is meant to give children a solid foundation of facts, that's the roots, the necessary skills needed to make it in this world, while at the same time fostering creativity and inspiration to do great things. That's the wings. And the Lord's Supper, although not identical, it can be seen in a similar way. In the Lord's Supper, we can say that that we look back, that's kind of the roots, we look back with our head in the clouds, with our feet on the ground. And this is possible through the three types of communion that we experience in this sacrament. Let's learn this afternoon how the Lord's Supper is communion. We see that it's a communion with the past, it's a communion with God, and it's a communion with each other. Now, the Lord's Supper is a communion with the past. It's interesting, isn't it? Have, have, you, ever, have you ever thought about this? There's so many different names for this sacrament in different churches. The Roman Catholics, they refer to it as Eucharist, meaning thanksgiving, or mass. And that's an interesting story If you want to learn a bit of Latin, you can talk to me after Mass comes from a misunderstanding of the Latin that was said. Very interesting story. Now, many traditional Protestant churches, like ours, call it the Lord's Supper, which is accurate, if rather unexciting terminology. But there's another another term that is used for the sacrament. In broader evangelical circles, they call this sacrament communion, something that is common, communion. So let's reflect on this terminology together. Communion, it has the idea of getting together. Communion has the idea of sharing. It has the idea of unity. And if we aren't careful, if we're not intentional about our terminology and defining our terms, then communion can be a bit of a dangerous word. Because the sacrament then can become something that is just a meal of fellowship with the other members of the church. It's just getting together. It's just eating together, having that horizontal union. That's an important aspect. We'll see that in our third point, but it doesn't describe everything that the sacrament is. So let's begin with that first aspect of communion, communion with the past. And this is first, not necessarily because it's the most important, but it's first just because this is how our Lord's Day begins. How does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. This is also what our Lord said in our reading. After giving his disciples the bread, he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is an important aspect of our celebration. Just as the preaching is meant to draw your attention to the saving work of Christ on the cross, so too are the sacraments meant to do exactly the same thing. 
And just briefly, though you would have touched on it in Lord's Day 25 already, what exactly are the sacraments? The preaching and the sacraments, they, they both come out of God's grace. So what are they? Now, sometimes a metaphor is the easiest way to understand it. It's likely the easiest way to remember it. So, so imagine this picture with me that describes the sacraments and the preaching. Imagine a fountain. Picture it in your mind. A tall fountain, 30, 40, 50 feet high. And this, we could say, is the fountain of grace. The water, it shoots out from the source at the top, and then it comes down these various tiers. One tier, one, one bowl of the fountain after the other. And this particular fountain, in this fountain, God's fountain of grace, there are two tiers. The two tiers, they stand for the two means of grace. The preaching of the word is one tier, one bowl, and then the sacraments is the other one. The sacrament of holy baptism, the sacrament of the holy supper. Each one of these, preaching, baptism, the Lord's Supper, they're meant to draw your attention to the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And of these three, the Lord's Supper does this perhaps most clearly. The bread is broken before our eyes. I'm sure the children notice this. When I've administered the Lord's Supper here, I've done this. I'm sure Pastor Tim does the same. No matter who's up here, it looks fairly similar. The minister lifts his hands so you can see. The bread is broken before your eyes. If you're not seeing that, you're trying really hard not to see it. And then the wine. I know for a fact that children notice this. I've seen it so many times. When I'm invited over to your house, the children try to pour the milk or the water like I pour the wine. They lift the pitcher up so high, sometimes it spills everywhere. So you can see that red wine being poured out. And neither of these things are accidental. It's not some weird quirk that we learn in seminary that this is the way to impress people, that you can lift your hands so high and break the bread, that you are very good with a wine pitcher. It's not an accident. It's not just to show off. These things are done so that you can have a picture of what happened all those years ago on the cross. The bread that we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. That bread is broken. You can see it broken because Jesus' body was broken. It's important to note here that Jesus' body was broken in two ways and it was not broken in one way. And that's to fulfill the scriptures. Our Lord's blessed body had no broken bones. That's not what breaking the bread means. For most crucifixions, there came a time when the legs of the condemned men were broken to speed up the death. This did happen to the two criminals crucified on either side of our Lord. But Christ, to fulfill the scriptures, none of his bones were broken, for he had already given up his spirit and he died. This way he was the Passover lamb. None of the bones were to be broken. His bones were not broken, but his body was broken. We could say that that his body was broken in two ways. It was broken in the sense that it refused to function properly anymore. Because the human body was not created to be whipped and beaten. The body is not meant to have thorns stuck in it or nails put through the wrists and through the feet. 
The body is not meant to be hung on a cross, bleeding out while you struggle for breath. Jesus Christ had a broken body. They were making his body do things it was never meant to do. And it was broken in another, perhaps even more important way. Jesus' body was broken in the sense that everyone who has ever died has had their body broken. It's broken in the ultimate way. His spirit left his body. There was no longer any life in him. Separation. Just as those two pieces of bread, once one piece, are broken and they're separated, so too Christ's body and his spirit, broken. The bread shows the brokenness of the body, and the wine shows the shedding of the blood. The shedding of the blood that he did for us. Without the shedding of blood, Scripture says, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9. The wine, it is poured out. You can see it poured out because our Lord's blood was poured out for you and for me. This is what we say. We say the cup of blessing for which we give thanks is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take, drink from it, all of you. Remember and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was poured out for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. And just like the body was broken in different ways, that blood, it was poured out in three distinct ways. First of all, we confess that the weight of the wrath of God caused by our sins, pressed out of him sweat like drops of blood falling on the ground in the garden of Gethsemane. So there was blood that was shed as the weight of the wrath of God became heavier and heavier on our Savior as he drew nearer and nearer the cross. Think of it that way, that our sins are something heavy. Our sins have something to them. They're not light. They're not nothing We can't sin casually. We sin, it's a heavy thing. It pressed out of our Lord, sweat like drops of blood. And then there was the blood caused by his torture and crucifixion. The blood on his brow because of the crown of thorns. The the blood on his back because of the whips and the scourges. The blood on his wrists and his feet from the nails. On that cross, as he became sin for us, that sin was punished by God. And thirdly, there was the blood that was shed when the soldier pierced his side with the spear. The soldier came up and he thrust into our Lord's side and blood and water came out. This was to show that he was dead. And so we could say our Lord's blood was shed through suffering, through dying, and in death itself. And so, beloved, when, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, our first communion is a communion, it's a connection, it's a unity with the past. It's not just an accident that it's bread and that it's wine. It's not just an accident that it's broken and poured out. It comes from a very real historical place. Christ's physical body was broken so that his spiritual body, all of us here at the church, could be made whole. Christ's blood was shed in horrific ways so that his people could be cleansed and beautiful in the eyes of God with all of our sins forgiven us. This is what he did for you. This is what he did for me. It's important that we remember that. that It was for you, that it was for me. It's all too easy for us to think of this in in an abstract way. This is what Christ did for the church. And of course he did. He suffered and died for the church. 
What is the church? The church is you and me. The church is individuals brought together. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is personal. This is shown in the individualistic language used in the Heidelberg Catechism here in Question and Answer 75. How does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and all his gifts? Christ has commanded me and all believers. This is personal. It's not just about the group. It's about you as an individual Christian. Christ died for you. The Lord's Supper is for you. Each one of us, we we must begin by looking back, but we must not pause there. Instead, after looking back, we must look up and have that vertical communion with God. That's our second point. Now, there's a point to us looking back, and that point is for us then to shift our eyes upwards and see what that historical earthly event did to our heavenly status before God. What happens in heaven when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here on earth? there are those who stop after looking back. They say that this is the only function of the Lord's Supper. After all, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So when we remember, we're obeying the entirety of the Lord's command, they say. The Lord's Supper is only a memorial. Now, on the one hand, we, we are. It is a memorial meal. But on the other hand, then we would be making the same mistake of so many Christians. I'm sure you've, you've heard this kind of thing before. Did you know, they say, did you know Jesus never said anything about homosexuality? Must not be important to God. If you have a red-letter Bible, none of those red letters say anything about homosexuality. Not exactly true, but there's something to that. Jesus never directly uh, spoke out against it. Or this one I heard at Bible college. Jesus said... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He didn't say, all authority has been given to the book that one day you guys will write. Sounds interesting. Sounds borderline blasphemous, though. But, but how, how do you argue against something like that? Well, pretty simply, actually. This, this comes as a lack of understanding of Scripture. Because every single word in the Bible, whether it's written in black or it's written in red, is the word of God. Every single word of it is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. Every word, whether, whether they are the quotations of Jesus or quotations of the Father or the instructions of the Spirit-inspired apostles. And the Apostle Paul, he was, he was specially commissioned for God's work, the apostle to the Gentiles. Some of that was, was in person, but a lot of it was through letters that he spoke and he wrote. And the letters of Paul, we see clarified some of the teachings of Jesus just as authoritative. Even though Paul is so much less than our Savior, Paul's words were inspired by the same God. And here's where this connects to the Lord's Supper. Here's where this connects. When we just read a passage like Luke 22, we say, okay, the memorial idea seems to make sense. Every time, perhaps, what he meant was every time you have Passover together, remember, I've changed the meaning of this. This is about me. This is about the new covenant. Maybe he meant every week when, when you break bread together, remember this. We don't know. But when you just look at the words of Christ, you say, okay, memorial, that makes sense. Why, why then are we making something more of it? But the Apostle Paul, 
inspired by the Holy Spirit. He has specific instructions for the Corinthians, for example, when they celebrate the Lord's Supper. He makes it very clear that it's not just a memorial meal. It's not just a sermon in visual form. Because what did Paul do with sermons? What did he do with preaching? He would go far and wide. He would preach to all those who would listen to him. From the Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill, and some of them believed, some of them scoffed, he still preached to them. To the Philippian jailer, to the Roman soldiers he was chained to during his house arrest. But the Lord's Supper is not for everyone. Paul warns the Corinthians, you have to eat in a, you have to eat in a worthy manner. Don't eat in an unworthy manner. He says, this is so serious. This is the reason that so many of you are sick. This is the reason that so many of you have died. It's because you're not properly celebrating. Clearly, this meal is different than just that of preaching. It's more than just the memorial. And that's because of that vertical communion that we have with God and that horizontal communion that we have with each other. There's, first of all, that that vertical communion between us and God. Through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we share a special unity with God. We are fed, we are spiritually nourished by God at the table. But how is that done? How do we have this unity, beloved? Well, the unity, it's not found in the elements, that is, in the bread and the wine, but it's found through them. Let me explain. Though the Roman church the Roman Catholic Church, they, they'll have you believe that the bread and the wine, they actually transform into the body and the blood. More on that later in the Catechism. Though the Lutheran Church, they will have you believe that what happens at the table is that Christ comes down from heaven and is spiritually present there in the bread and the wine. Neither of these is faithful to what Scripture says. When Christ proclaims, this is my body, He is doing it in a metaphorical way. This is not the only time that he speaks in metaphor. So many times, all of the parables, they were metaphors. So many of his statements, for example, when Jesus said, I am the door for the sheep, he does not mean that he's made of wood. He does not mean that he has a handle. He does not mean that he's out there in a field somewhere surrounded by sheep. But instead, what he's doing is he's comparing himself to the door for the sheep. There are similarities there. And so it is here, too. The bread in his hand at that first communion can be compared to his body. It's a sign of his body. It's not that the bread in his hand was another finger that he tore off and this is my flesh. No, this was a symbol. The Catechism deals specifically with the Roman Catholic view a few Lord's Days from now, but the Lutheran view not really dealt with too much here in the Catechism, is, is not accurate either. Because the book of Mark, the book of Acts, the book of Philippians, the book of Hebrews, the book of Revelation, and many others, they speak of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, who is sitting at the right hand of his Father in heaven. That's where Jesus Christ is right now. And yes, he's present with us by his Holy Spirit, but he himself is personally in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. That is where he wants to be worshipped. And so he doesn't come down off of his heavenly throne every time the Lord's Supper is had, and he's present there spiritually. When When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are not dragging our Savior down, but instead, mysteriously, even mystically, we are taken up to him. 
This is what our form means when it says, we do not cling with our hearts to the outward symbols of bread and wine, but lift our hearts on high in heaven where Christ our advocate is at the right hand of his heavenly father. And John Calvin, he, he put it like this in this most beautiful way. And if you haven't heard this before, I hope the next time that you celebrate, you'll remember this and you'll be in awe. John Calvin, he put it so beautifully. He said, in the Lord's Supper, Christ is present, not by descending to us, but rather by him raising us up to himself. And lest this be too difficult for us to understand, Calvin adds these words. He says, I will not be ashamed to confess that it is too high a mystery either for my mind to comprehend or my words to express. And to speak more plainly, I feel it rather than understanding it. So what happens when we're at the table, or I think here you celebrate in the pews, what happens when you take of the bread, when you eat of the wine? Your heart, your soul, in a mysterious, mystical way that we don't understand, ascends to heaven and is present with Christ in that moment. And that is where we are fed, that is where we are nourished, that is where we are strengthened. It's the teaching of Scripture. It doesn't matter if we can understand it or not. And truthfully, who, who among us is bold enough? Who among us is presumptuous enough to claim that they know exactly how God himself works? But through the Lord's Supper, Christ is not dragged down to our level. He's not hidden somewhere under the bread. He's not mixed together with the wine, but instead we are brought up to him. Spiritually into heaven, before the throne of God where Christ is seated. That is where we are unified in him. He was already on earth with his human body. He came down with his flesh. He did this once for all. His glorified body resides in heaven, and that's where we join him in our celebration. We, as humble sinners, now called to be saints, were united with Christ. And the only way that we have this union with him is through what was accomplished on the cross. Our souls, they are nourished, they are refreshed to eternal life with his crucified body and his shed blood. It was through what was accomplished on the cross that we are right with God. There's nothing that we can do. There's no words that we can say with our mouth, no feelings that we can feel with our heart, no bread that we can eat, no wine that we can drink that will make us right with God. But instead... It's only through that one sacrifice of Christ on the cross that this kind of communion is possible. And we must remember that. As wonderful and powerful and grace-filled as that meal is, our salvation is not found at the table. It's a table of blessing, not a table of salvation. We're reminded of what God has done for us through Christ, but it was done only once. Through baptism, the other sacrament, we're covered with that blood. And in the Lord's Supper, we are partakers in the blood. Let me very briefly, before moving to our last point, share with you perhaps one of the most important contrasts between believers and unbelievers when it comes to the judgment of God. That's found in Revelation chapter 6, if you want to turn there with me. In Revelation Chapter 6 is, as you know, the book of Revelation, it's, it's all about the, the end times. It's all about what happens when Christ will return. And 
we can see in the book of Revelation, it's, it's all of these metaphors. Again, a metaphor, just like this is my body. And so the world actually ends about five or six times in the book of Revelation. This is one of the times when the world is ending. In Revelation 6, it talks about seven seals. Each of these seals able to be opened because the Lamb, that's our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. In chapter 5, because of the Lamb, it, it, these uh, seals are opened a different action happens when every seal is opened that must come before the end. The conquering of the earth, the, the taking of peace, the taking of life, etc. And I want to draw your attention to the sixth seal being opened. This seal is a great earthquake that comes on the earth. And John sets the scene for us. Let's pick it up at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And so, at the end of time, this will be the cry of unbelievers great and small. They will all cower before the judgment of God. And as believers on that day, we will have a different cry. But it's not as different as we might think. For when the day of God's wrath comes, we will not be able to stand on our own. We will also cry out. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. When unbelievers, when they cry out on that day, they cry out for death. They cry out not to appear before God's throne of judgment. They cry out for the rocks to cover them. And on that day, we will cry out to be covered as well but covered not with rocks, but instead we will cry out to be covered with the atoning blood of Christ. We will cry out to God. We will say, please cover us with your blood. See us as redeemed people, no longer sinners. Work in us. Work in us so that one day we will be washed clean, finally, perfectly, forever clean in the blood of the Lamb, and we will never sin again. What we want is not death away from the throne, but we want life before it. Life before it forever. And that small taste of the vertical communion that we experience through the Lord's Supper, that small taste when we are briefly brought up into heavenly glory, we eagerly desire that communion forever with our God. But our communion is not only with God. It is, and that is our most important communion But our worship, though unquestionably personal, is never meant to be private. Just as Adam was not meant to be alone in the Garden of Eden, so we too are not meant to be alone in our worship. Our communion must be with God first and foremost, that vertical communion between us and God. But it also has to extend horizontally. For the children here, an easy way to remember that is we have communion because of the cross, and that communion is shown in the symbol of a cross, vertically and horizontal. You can draw a cross on your liturgy sheet if you want to remember. That's that horizontal communion. That's, that's our final point this afternoon. So the Lord's Supper. It's not a meal that is meant to be celebrated privately. It's not a meal that's meant to be celebrated individually, but rather it should be done communally as a group. And not just any group, it's not just a group of your friends who gather together on a Friday night, but rather it is a holy meal that should be celebrated properly, that should be celebrated reverently, but also joyfully. It's a meal of the redeemed, it's a meal for the soul. 
spiritual feast. We heard earlier that question and answer 75 intentionally use that individualistic personal language, but then there's a shift. In question and answer 76, it shifts to communal language. It's in the plural now. This is a meal for us to celebrate personally, but also all together. Personally, but not privately. And celebrating the sacrament, it, it shows equality. Whether you're an office bearer or not, you eat. Whether you feel as if you're a strong Christian or a weak Christian or some mixture of the two, you need the blood of Christ to cry out on your behalf before the throne. Whether you're male or female, whether you professed your faith decades ago or just last year, at the table of the Lord, we are all equal. We are all equally needy. We are all equally sinful. And what's beautiful is that we're all equally forgiven. We're all equally loved by our God table shows our equality and shows our unity. So we're the redeemed people coming together for a meal of redemption. Our souls are united to God by the blood of Christ, but our souls, they're also united to each other by the blood and by the Spirit. We're made one by the body and blood of our Lord. And through this meal, we, we grow ever closer together, ever closer to him, ever closer to each other, our brothers and sisters. This is what the Catechism says. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and drink his shed blood? To be united more and more to his sacred body through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us. We forever live and are governed by one spirit as the members of our body are by the one soul. Every aspect of the Catechism here, every aspect of Answer 76, it's stated in the plural. It's us, we, together. This meal is not meant to be eaten alone in a dark corner hoping to gain favor with God. When we love God, we love his body. When we love God, we love his bride. We may be weak. We may feel divided over politics. We may feel divided over what songs to sing in the worship service or what instruments to use for worship. Any number of important or unimportant things. But congregation, let us strive for unity. It's not unity at all costs, unity at the expense of truth, just go along to get along. But the wonderful thing, the best thing about the church is that we're not united by weak human things. We're not united because we live in the same neighborhood. We're not united because we have the same fashion sense. We're not united in our view of politics. But we're united as those who believe in ultimate truth. United as those who believe in ultimate truth, but that's not who we're united by. We're not united because of what we believe. We're united because of what has been done to us, what has been done for us. We're united as sinners gathered at the foot of the cross of Christ. It is our Savior that unites us. It isn't us worshiping together. That's the response. It is Him loving us and loving us first. It is him pouring out his abundant mercy on us. That is the thing that holds us together. And he has united us, struggling, sinful saints. Those who have been shown the light. Those who have been shown grace and mercy. Those who have gained salvation because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we look to the past as our foundation. That's our roots, firm and sure. And we look up to the heavenly throne 
as the Spirit gives our heart wings to be united with the Lord in his glorified state. We look around and we see each other rooted in that same history, trusting in that same cross, praising him with those same hearts. This is the unity that God loves. This is the unity that God blesses. Amen.